there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo!
This is. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Black-eyed peas. The 
to get a little loopy off the ignorant fluid And act a little stupid just in case you didn't knew it That's just how we do it, don't ask why we do it That's just the way it be Loving double D's up at the AD When I'm partying in Hollywood, VIP I don't understand that's T.O.P. On a hot plate like that, y'all. We on a festive date. Make it go ape and raise your heart rate. We gon' stay out late. Party till the morning and wake up. up late. We do it till the daybreak. Go on and on and then on and on and. Dance to my rhyme. Acapella, acapella, deaf to your blind. Your mind, baby. Take you to the love of your behind, baby. Take a sip of more just for time, baby. Cock me back and show my nine, baby. We don't quit, no, we don't quit. Some fly mama, so pack your pajamas, but don't bring the drama. But you could bring your melody. I'll plug in my mic and sing my harmony. For how many times we gonna hit it? How many times we gonna split? How many times you gonna get it? Or else you are gonna wanna come sober. You're gonna have to order. Cause I'm the alligator champ, driving a train, driving a train. Or you could call your friend and I'll switch my lane and get buddy buddy with your friend Mary Jane. She really blows my brain. She really blows my brain. Good morning, mutineers. <clears throat> this is the Labor and Love Show coming to you from Mutiny Radio. And this is our special Labor Day show. As Black Eyed Peas just told us, it's a holiday. Celebrate. It's a holiday. Black-eyed peas. 
Okay, so we've got a show plan, good show plan for you today. We're going to play parts of Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement, Golden Lands, Working Hands. What happened today in labor history? 1991, 3,500 buses rolled into Washington, D.C. To do what? We've got guest commentators, Francesca, Francesca Ramsey, and Francesca Fiorentini talking about can we survive capitalism? Why is voter ID, why are voter ID laws inherently racist? What have unions done for us anyway? Huh? Do we know? Well, we're going to find out today. We've also got a section by Jack London, where Jack London, from a novel, describes a work day, <clears throat> a work week, a work month, washing and pressing uh, white shirts at the Bohemian Grove. Then we've got our labor beat. Twenty thousand workers are on strike at AT and T. An Iranian journalist and labor activist, subject to ten years, sentenced to ten years and 148 lashes. Problem with Congress, pretty obvious. Commentary from Barbara Ehrenreich regarding low-page workers. What trickle down? Huh? Worker pays up 12%. How much does CEO pay up? And a woman that we all Revere and love Dolores Huerta's still at it, getting arrested. The NLRB rules in favor of fired workers. What? What's going on? <laughs> Talk a little about Jay-Z. Anyway, let, let's... First, we started out with, uh, like I said, Black Eyed Peas. Labor Day, it's a holiday, and I want to look up those lyrics, see what they have to say about it. Before that, we had the classic labor song by Pete Seeger, Which Side Are You On?, written by the redoubtable Florence Reese, as her living room was being, her house was being torn apart by company scabs, company security people, looking for her husband. Lawrence Reese, and the one before that was by Cher Bono. Yes, that Cher, talking about working girl, working girl, working in a man's world. Something else I want to talk about today is something that we don't often talk about um, 
a lot of political and uh, economic commentary now is based solely on value, on money, on is it good or not good for workers monetarily. We're going to take a look about at alienation. This is uh, a concept that uh, Karl Marx wrote about. But what is how does living under capitalism alienate us one from the other? One commentator says it makes us all into homeless people. Makes us all feel like we're homeless. Okay. We've got labor cards. We've got... Uh, Let's start out with a little labor history. <clears throat> August 31st, Why We March. On this day in labor history, the year was 1991. 3,500 buses rolled into Washington, D.C. They were loaded with protesters there to participate in Solidarity Day. The AFL-CIO organized the event to coincide with the Labor Day weekend. They issued a statement, Why We March, outlining labor's demands. The purpose of the day was to bring attention to the concerns of the nation's working people, especially over health care. Other reasons for the march included a call for more public works programs. Another major demand was the end to permanent replacement of striking workers by scabs. Bernie Dinkin, secretary-treasurer of the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union in Philadelphia, explained, One of the main purposes for us going down is to let our friends know, our friends in the Democratic Party who are sitting on their laurels, that if they do not support anti-scab legislation, we will vote against them, no matter what they've done in the past. The most important aim of the event was to show worker strength and solidarity. A similar showing of solidarity had taken place in the nation's capital 10 years before. After President Reagan fired striking air traffic controllers, a September 1981 rally had drawn more than a quarter of a million people. The 1991 action brought out similar numbers. Despite the 95-degree weather, tens of thousands converged on the nation's capital. They came from across the nation and 30 countries. One 100 buses and a specially chartered train made the trip from Philadelphia. Noticeable among the crowd were members of the United Steelworkers Union with their gold and blue shirts. 180 different labor, religious, and civil rights groups stood up on that day for the rights of working people. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryintwo.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1996. That was the day the workers at the Lusty Lady Strip Club in San Francisco made their final push to make their case for the right to join a union. They made history by winning the union vote 57 to 15. SEIU Local 790 led the historic campaign. What started the union drive was the windows at the private booths where the ladies performed. The windows had one-way glass. 
That meant patrons could look in, but performers could not see out. They worried that the men could videotape them or take photographs without their permission. When management refused to change the windows, the women started talking union. Soon, other workplace issues arose as the women furthered their union discussion. One woman recalled, We started to discuss other problems at work, like being forced to come in when you were sick. She went on, Our first thought was to organize a petition, but we were really concerned about individual dancers being scapegoated and fired because that happened on a regular basis. Another participant in the union drew on her personal background as a reason for getting involved. She noted, I had been raised to support union efforts and the workers' cause. I hadn't ever worked at a place where there was any sort of struggle to be a part of. The women ran a successful campaign to unionize. Despite winning the vote, management dragged its feet in negotiating their first contract. The women went on strike and management locked them out. Few men dared to cross the picket line to enter the club, and within a few days, management capitulated and returned to the bargaining table where the women signed their first contract. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day that one of the most pitched battles in U.S. labor history, the Battle of Blair Mountain, began in West Virginia. Coal fueled the engines of industry, keeping the trains moving and the steel mills humming. Labor organizing in the coal fields faced violent repression. The conflict turned bloody at Matawan. Friend of labor, local lawman Sid Hatfield, had won a gun battle against armed members of the notorious Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Then, other Baldwin Feltz agents, brought to West Virginia by the mine owners, gunned down Hatfield in cold blood. The miners' anger boiled over. 600 miners gathered under the United Mine Workers of America District 17 banner. The armed miners were determined to march into the state's southern coal fields. Their aim was to promote the union effort and sweep away the gunmen hired by the mining companies. As they marched, more and more miners joined them. As many as 10,000 miners converged on Blair Mountain. The high ground stood between the unionized northern part of the state and the less organized southern mines. At Blair Mountain, they met Logan County Sheriff Don Chafin, who had amassed an army of 3,000 armed men to repel the miners. Chafin's men had dug trenches, blocked roads, and marshaled machine guns to stop the Union men. In the battle that ensued, one million rounds were fired. The mine owners hired private planes to drop shrapnel bombs on the miners. The United States Army finally arrived. The miners, many of them World War I veterans, surrendered. Although the owners had won, what occurred at Blair Mountain drew national attention to the unsafe working conditions and the brutality of the coal barons in the coal fields. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Labor history there in two minutes, and it seems like uh, the end of August is a, as the rest of the whole calendar is a labor history time. Uh, we had a varied uh, calendar there of uh, labor history exhibits from strippers at the Lusty Lady to pitched battles at Blair Mountain. 
to the 1991 demo that drew a quarter of a million people to Washington, D.C. Black Eyed Peas, I wanted to... Let's see. Black Eyed Peas, I, I wanted to um, check out the band, Black Eyed Peas and talk a little about them, maybe look at the lyrics. Okay, Black Eyed Peas, an American musical group, which we already know. Um, originally an alternative hip-hop group, they sub subsequently changed their music sound to pop and dance pop music. Although the group was founded in L.A. in 1995, it was not until the release of their third album, Elefunk, in 2003, that they achieved high record sales. Since that time, the group has sold an estimated 75 million records, making them one of the world's best-selling groups of all time. Black Eyed Peas. And let's see if we can get a look at uh, lyrics. Um, the Battle of Blair Mountain, one million rounds of ammunition. Were shot in that battle. Uh, the closest thing in the 20th century that um, an armed pitched battle. Now those those miners were outgunned by the uh, federal government. The government had brought in troops. Um, they were, they were um, advised by Mother Jones not to fight against the federal troops. And like the report said, it, it did bring a, um, attention to the plight of miners. And out of that, in 1931, came Florence Reese and Which Side Are You On? Constant struggle in the coal mines. Even to this day... Uh, as coal miners whose jobs are disappearing as we give up on coal. Concerned with their futures, what's going to happen to them? What happens to a 55-year-old coal miner whose job is over? I mean, how's he going to get a job? Where's he going to get a job? And that's all he's known all his life. Mr. Trump made a big show about saving coal but it's just not in the cards. It's dirty, it pollutes, it kills those who mine it. And even though miners, you know, try to cling to that as something they can depend on, it's because they're not sure of what's coming next. Black Eyed Peas, Labor Day. When I step in the room, I bring the heat like the month of June. Crank the vibe, you make the bass go boom. While out some wild baboon, we go bananas to the tune. 
and partying in Hollywood. VIP don't understand this TOD. We party forever. We get down together. We don't stop and we don't quit. Let's get it going because you know we're going to celebrate. It's a holiday. I don't work today or the next three days, so let's celebrate. It's a holiday. I don't work today. Party till the morning and wake up late. We do it to the daybreak. Dance to my rhyme. We don't stop. Okay, Black Eyed Peas celebrating Labor Day with their song, It's a Holiday. What, by the way, besides, besides Labor Day, the Labor Day holiday, what have unions done for us? Thank a union. Let's figure it out. Weekends, paid vacation, FMLA, family medical leave, paid sick leave, child labor laws, social security, minimum wage, eight-hour day, overtime pay, Health and Safety, OSHA, Healthcare, Dental, Vision, Collective Bargaining, Breaks, Wrongful Termination Laws, Age Discrimination Laws, Raises, Sexual Harassment Laws, American Disabilities Act, Holiday Pay, Military Leave, Equal Pay Act, Civil Rights, Workers' comp. Thank a union. Now, there are always those people. We saw last week how... Uh, organizing efforts in uh, Dayton, Ohio. movie that we're going to talk about a little later called American Factory. Here are the union here are the workers. Workers united against workers uniting. Ten reasons we're against unions. I prefer having no power. I love bosses. Unions just want to line their own pockets. Unlike bosses who have only our interests at heart. Well, uh, other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, uh, pension plans, higher wages, and sick leave, what good have unions ever done for us? There's a woman saying, I deserve less pay than men. And here's a guy with a hook instead of a hand. I wouldn't want the company wasting money making my job safer. Speaking objectively, all unions are evil. I want the right to work, along with the right to be arbitrarily fired, okay? 
Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only businesses should get to do that. One day, I'll get rich and I'll be the boss. Once that happens, I don't want some union getting in my way. I'm also going to be boss. Who wants more power at work? These are your voices, your anti-union voices, and that's what they amount to. What have unions done for us? All those things. So let's talk a little bit about the Amazon jungle. And again, this is, uh, we're going to get into this with, uh, with um, Francesca Fiorentini. Can we afford, can we survive unions? Yes. Can we survive capitalism? <laughs> Maybe not. Here we go, Francesca Fiorentini. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode, we're looking at the failures of profit-driven climate change solutions and why the cooking of our planet is becoming a recipe for socialism. Once again, we've broken global temperature records with July being the hottest month recorded since the invention of recording temperatures, which if you're a right winger, sounds like very biased framing. The libs never wanna talk about the Hadean age when the earth was molten lava, typical. It's so hot that Greenland is losing ice that wasn't supposed to melt until 2070. The Arctic is on fire, and I'm pretending I belong at random pool parties. Oh, who, who am I friends with? Oh, Derek. Or Michael. Matt. You're telling me there's no Matt here? So now seems like as good a time as every other moment prior till now to talk about climate change. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius since the time we started burning all these fossil fuels. And we're on track to warm by four degrees, possibly as soon as 2060. According to the most recent UN study, even two degrees of warming would mean millions more refugees, double the loss of food harvest, 10 centimeters of sea level rise, and an obliteration of all coral reefs. Which means we've got 12 years to have a shot at keeping the temperature to a still bad but manageably terrifying one and a half degrees celsius of warming so yeah banning plastic straws ain't gonna cut it even though it's fun to watch so-called liberal paper straws trigger our president into doing this his campaign started selling trump themed uh plastic straws <laughs> so you could buy a pack of 10 for 15 dollars 15 dollars for 10 straws that's a dollar fifty per straw. If that's how much Trump thinks straws cost, how much is his dealer charging him for Adderall? Yeah, that'll be uh, seven hundred thousand dollars. 
Part of the reason we're at such a breaking point is thanks to years of shallow solutions. Solutions often devised by the same corporate interests that got us into this mess in the first place. One of those solutions is carbon cap and trade, which tries to get polluters to pollute less by limiting the amount of carbon any corporation can emit, but also by allowing them to purchase carbon limits from other companies who haven't used theirs up. Cap and trade has already been implemented in countries around the world and in a number of US states, but many say that it doesn't actually stop emissions. It just spreads them around and creates a speculative market for carbon. Like, imagine if you could buy and sell Weight Watchers points to keep eating pizza. Someone would be making money, but no one's losing weight. Plus, we'd see the rise of a frightening thin people mafia who control the whole racket. Just listen to one researcher who says cap and trade pushes us in the opposite direction of where we need to be going. We need to overcome our addiction to fossil fuels and the problem with cap and trade is, it, is that it stands in the way of doing that in, in many ways. It's, it's, it's a way of providing pollution rights to some of the worst polluters so that they can delay the kind of structural change that's necessary. He's right. That's not how you fight an addiction. If you want to get your brother off heroin, you don't split up his stash between your mom and dad like, let's all just do a little bit of heroin to keep Brad from doing a lot of bit of heroin. At this point, cap and trade isn't even a relevant solution anymore because it's too slow to be viable. California, the second largest carbon polluter in the nation, but first in my heart, reduced its emissions by almost 9% in three years, which is not bad. But do the math. It's not nearly enough if we've got only 12 years to get to zero. Silicon Valley is still going to be underwater, and then we'll have to deal with a whole bunch of flotation device startups, and that just seems exhausting. So cap and trade won't get us there. What about innovation? We'll just ask the science nerds to come up with something. I mean, other than the ones telling us to stop burning fossil fuels. Innovation has been the aim of private companies also looking to get rich off the climate crisis. Floating ideas like geoengineering, which includes one plan to spray reflective aerosols into the stratosphere to block the sun. Yeah. Aerosol. If only our climate change denying president knew that this whole time the answer has been hairspray. Turns out, though, that that scheme, like many others, has too many unforeseen side effects to be feasible. Things like stopping rain and totally vindicating chemtrail conspiracists. Even if wacky inventions or cap-and-trade worked, they're still too slow. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $649 billion a year. So not only are they making the planet uninhabitable, they're getting a goddamn discount. These faux solutions have come and gone, all while climate change has been getting worse, which means now we need to do far more in way less time. The longer we wait, the more that the response challenges our economic system because we need to cut so much and so deeply. What does she mean that the response will challenge our economic system? Well, that's because our economic system is currently based on using up all of Earth's natural resources with no regard for the actual Earth all to turn a profit and create economic growth, or GDP. You remember GDP from our video on the economy, which you should totally watch. And while you're at it, subscribe. GDP is that phantom number that many agree is useless, but is actually incredibly harmful when it comes to climate change. Since when was GDP a sensible measure of human welfare? And yet everything that governments want to do is to try to boost GDP. Now, people like the OECD or the World Bank who say, oh, we're not asking for a lot of growth, just 3% a year. That means doubling in 24 years. Yeah, we're bursting through all the environmental boundaries and screwing the planet already. You want to double it? We have to overthrow this system, which is eating the planet with perpetual growth.
I love how blown this host's mind is. Rarely do you see the precise moment that someone gets woke. You mean it's not about plastic straws? Slowing down economic growth has actually been the only thing that has drastically stopped greenhouse gas emissions. The only thing in the last 40 years that has measurably reduced global greenhouse gas emissions is reductions in economic growth. When the Eastern Bloc collapsed in the early 90s, that led to global emissions reductions. He's right. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, greenhouse gas emissions dropped by about 40%. Apparently, people not eating meat because of the high prices had a lot to do with it. It was nothing but veggie borscht for them. And to think now it's way less painful to avoid eating meat with things like the Impossible Whopper, which I will try as soon as I stop being afraid of it. How does it bleed? The evidence is there that unless we're willing to rethink capitalism, we might have to rethink life itself. Because we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. We've been obsessed with doing more to stop climate change, making even more money, when the answer is actually keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Doing less. Like Disney live-action reboots. Do less. Less extraction of oil, less production, fewer or no yachts for the DeVos family. Renewable energy, solar and wind can replace coal, gas and oil, but we still can't keep endlessly producing and consuming. Even a UN official back in 2015 said as much, and that got the attention of Fox News' Greg Gutfeld, who quoted her on his show. This is probably the most difficult task to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. And predictably, that was met with red baiting. Well, she's wrong. It's see Mao and the 50 million dead, or Stalin. Hell, look at Venezuela right now. It's a crap show without toilet paper. Yeah. Seriously, they don't have toilet paper in Venezuela. Oh, where we're going, Greg, you won't need toilet paper because the whole world will be one giant bidet. You can wash your face ass wherever you want. Beyond the red baiting, there's an honest question. If we slow down production, will there be jobs? Enter the Green New Deal, a plan introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that other guy. The Green New Deal is a blueprint for a 10-year mobilization to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by taking major steps like moving to renewable energy and building public transportation, all with the labor of millions of newly created jobs. This is a call to reorganize and to make sure that we are fighting for a just economy, for a just society, a just environment, and a just future for the United States of America and the world. Mm, sorry, having an ASMR moment. And whenever there's a plan for massive public investment and putting people over profit, it scares the 1% and their mouthpieces a whole lot. They were looking for an issue that would justify a hostile takeover of the economy. Climate change seems scary, so they went with that. Oh my God. Tucker Carlson would rather human civilization die than live in a more equal country. Also, note what's going on just to his right. Yeah, those are updates on an abnormally large hurricane off the Gulf Coast. I love how there's an infiltrator at Fox fighting the machine from the inside, and it's the weather. It will be hard to rein in emissions and capitalism for that matter, but it is possible. We must try with your help, with your insistence, with your organizing, with your demands, with your voting, with your mobilizing a broader electorate than we have ever seen before in American history, we do not have to go down that path. It's too late to stop some climate chaos. We're living it. 
But are we going to die from the things we love, no matter how humiliating? Will we be the David Carradine of civilizations? Or are we going to get real about real solutions? There's time, but we can't do it by just pissing around at the margins of the problem. We've got to go straight to the heart of capitalism and overthrow it. In other words, wouldn't we rather be red than dead? Thanks so much for watching Newsbroke. Follow me at Franny Fio and follow AJ Plus and Newsbroke on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all the things. Do you guys think that the U.S. has what it takes to transform to a new... Okay, Francesca Fiorentini there with her analysis of the problems that climate change, that capitalism has caused, actually. Capitalism is based on the endless exploitation of the earth, and the earth is not endless. The resources are not endless. It's not, uh, it's not immortal. The earth is not immortal in the sense that we're talking about, in the sense that it can support what we call civilization. And there's an apparent contradiction between labor, people who need to go to work every day and support their families, and climate change solutions where new jobs have to be found, jobs that don't rip off the earth, jobs that on the contrary undo the harmful things that capitalism has done and build a new world based not on greed, but survival. One labor leader who was well aware of that was a man named Chico Mendes. Labor card number one, and we're going to talk a little about Chico Mendes today. Chico Mendes was a tapper, a worker who lived and harvested rubber trees in the Brazilian rainforest. Now, the rainforest is in the news because the president of Brazil um, is continuing the process, even expediting the process of burning down the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, to open up land the way the United States uh, government opened up land and one thing they had to do was kill all the natives, which they did, and now that's what's happening in Brazil. Native tribes are being exploited, are being kicked off their land, their ancestral lands, and those lands are being burned down to make cattle ranches, sugarcane plantations. In other words... The so-called Turner Thesis, the U.S. Uh, historian, said that the West was sort of the uh, safety valve for civilization when people couldn't make it in the East, in the big cities of the East. There was this West that was out there. Land was... Uh, easy to get, you could start your own spread, you could, uh, as long as the West had to be destroyed and replanted, you know, with miles of crops and things. Well, that's happening in Brazil. 
Chico Mendez became leader of the Tappers Union in 1980. His union fought for workplace rights and the preservation of the rainforest ecology against rich ranching interests. Chico Mendez understood that ecology was part of his work because if the uh, rubber trees were all burned down, he and his, his union people and other tappers would have no work. Mendes' work brought worldwide attention to the destruction of the Amazon jungle. The union organized nonviolent actions to resist the takeover of trapper communities and block bulldozers and chainsaw crews. Beautiful children's book called Don't Cut Down That Tree. There's a, a guy who's being paid to chop down trees in the Amazon. And one day he takes a little nap and all the animals and species that live on that tree and around that tree come and speak to him. Chico Mendez's son, almost of course, Chico Mendez, almost of course, was murdered in 1988. There's a film about Mendez's life and work with Raul Julia entitled The Burning Season, which was released in 1994. We've got a little feature here about Chico Mendez and how important his work was and how important it was that he found a nexus between the labor movement, the blue, and the green, the ecological movement. Chico Mendez... Peaceful The Amazon rainforest is one of the most important regions in the world, with more species of plants and animals than any other area on the planet. The Amazon basin contains 1.4 billion acres of dense rainforest and has an estimated 390 billion individual trees. This unique ecosystem is important for its rich biodiversity and its abundance of natural resources. However, because of its resources, the Amazon rainforest has been targeted for exploitation for more than 500 years. In recent decades, many commercial entities have set up operations in the Amazon, including cattle ranchers and logging companies. As a result, there has been massive deforestation, which has severely damaged the overall ecosystem and all those who depend on it. One of the groups hurt most by deforestation has been the indigenous people who live there. At one point, the Amazon was home to nearly 6 million tribal people. By the early 1900s, there were fewer than 250,000 natives still living there. Pushed from their homeland and deprived of their resources, thousands of natives found themselves living in poverty with few leaders to represent them or to protect the forest that they relied upon to survive. One man who had the courage to stand up for the indigenous people of the Amazon was Brazilian activist Chico Mendes. Mendes was both a labor leader and an environmentalist. As a labor leader, he worked tirelessly to win basic human rights for the people of the Amazon. And as an environmentalist, he fought to preserve the rainforests of the region. Mendez understood that the Amazon was not just important for the survival of local communities, but also for the health of the entire planet. 
His activism caught the attention of the world and helped to create a movement to protect the Amazon rainforests and the indigenous people living there. Although his life ended tragically, Mendez accomplished a great deal in a short time, and his legacy continues to inspire people to this day. This is his story. Francisco Chico Mendez was born on December 15, 1944, on a Brazilian rubber plantation outside of the town of Japuri. His family was poor, but very close. When Mendez was eight or nine years old, he started working with his father, tapping rubber trees for their sap, which was later turned into latex. By the time he was 11, he was working full time. As Mendez grew up, he increasingly became aware of how his family and the local community were being exploited. Workers put in long hours for minimal pay, earning barely enough to survive. At the same time, they were being overcharged for goods at company stores, a practice that kept them in constant debt. To make matters worse, many workers developed debilitating lung diseases because the process of making latex produced such dangerous toxic fumes. There were no protections for the workers and no health benefits for those who became sick. Watching so many people struggling, Chico Mendez became increasingly determined to take action. We are unable to remain silent in the face of so much injustice, he said. Mendez began his crusade in a very simple way. He sent letters to the Brazilian government. Mendez sent the letters with great optimism, naively believing that government officials would quickly take action. However, for the most part, his letters were ignored and nothing was done. As a result, Mendez decided to raise the stakes and pursue a more assertive process of collective action. In the early 1970s, Mendez organized the plantation workers into an official labor union. As a unified force, the workers had much more power. They set clear goals and pressured landowners to meet their demands. To demonstrate their power, workers began blocking the roadways into the plantations, refusing to move until action was taken, a form of nonviolent civil disobedience that proved to be very effective. In 1975, Chico Mendez and the workers finally had some success. Landowners officially recognized the Rubber Tappers Union and began to make concessions. The union pushed for wage increases, improved conditions, and better protections for the rainforest that was their home. Progress was slow, but steady. However, just as Mendez and his allies began making gains, larger economic forces turned the entire rubber-making industry on its head. As new manufacturing methods advanced, artificial rubber was replacing naturally produced latex. This caused the traditional rubber-tapping industry to completely collapse in just a matter of years. Responding to these sudden changes, plantation owners began selling their land to cattle ranchers, hoping to offset their losses. The ranchers moved in quickly and started cutting down trees to make way for grazing cattle. Deforestation advanced on a scale never seen before. Once again, Mendez and his people found their homes and their way of life threatened by powerful interests. And once again, they moved into action. Organized by Mendez, local communities began setting up blockades to prevent loggers from entering key areas. Other groups took their resistance to a whole new level, sabotaging the equipment used to cut down trees. However, with millions of dollars at stake, cattle ranchers soon retaliated. They hired police to strong-arm Mendez and his followers. Many activists were arrested and taken into custody. Some were even beaten and tortured. Still, in spite of these harsh tactics, Mendez and his supporters succeeded in saving over 3 million hectares from destruction. Progress came at a cost, but the workers were willing to bear it. 
1985, Mendez began pursuing a new strategy. Working with his colleague Maria Allegretti, Mendez spent five months organizing a national meeting of rubber tappers from throughout the Amazon. Together, they launched a new approach, focusing more on the importance of preserving the rainforest and its resources. With this new strategy, they were hoping to win more international support from environmental groups, and the strategy worked. By March of 1987, the Environmental Defense Fund and the National Wildlife Federation flew Mendez to Washington, D.C. to convince the Inter-American Development Bank and the U.S. Congress to support the creation and protection of extractive reserves. With growing support, Mendez continued to improve working and living conditions for his people while increasing protection for the rainforests. As Mendez made important gains, however, he realized he was also making dangerous enemies along the way. In 1988, he predicted that he would not live to see the end of the year, and sadly, his prediction came true. That year, Mendez became involved in a dispute with a local rancher named Darley Alves da Silva, who bought a rubber plantation to log for wood. As the situation heated up, events spiraled out of control. On December 22, 1988, just one week after his 44th birthday, Mendez was gunned down by da Silva's son. Incredibly, Mendez was the 19th activist to be killed in Brazil that year. Although some of those cases were never solved, Mendez was too high profile for his case to be swept aside. After a brief investigation, Darley da Silva and his son Darcy were arrested and convicted of the murder. Each was sentenced to 19 years in prison. But even in death, Mendez could claim victories for his home and his people. To the extensive media coverage his assassination received, several U.S. Senators flew down to Brazil to push for change. As a result, the Brazilian government passed laws to protect the rainforest and approved a plan to replant 2.5 million acres of woodland that had been destroyed. In addition, the Chico Mendes Extractive Reserve was created in his honor in the area where he lived. Chico Mendes was a brave and spirited activist for both human rights and the environment. He was the guiding force behind the movement to organize indigenous rubber tappers, and he helped raise awareness about the dangers of Amazon deforestation. Thanks in large part to his work, an ongoing effort continues to this day to protect the rainforests of the Amazon and the indigenous people who call it home. At first, I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees, said Mendez. Then, I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now, I realize I am fighting for humanity. Chico Mendez, um... A labor leader and an environmentalist. In his work, uh, the two are joined together. There's no contradiction. And uh, it's time, right? It's time to uh, do something. There's a song from uh, the UFW. <laughs> one 
for this one is for Solina. De colores, de colores se visten los campos en la primavera. De colores, de colores son los pajaritos que vienen de afuera.
Matador is working close to the animal. Suit of lights becomes stained. The dark blood stain is honorable. It is also steeped in horror. Should the taste of your favorite herb come from the death of some rare love? So the life of the bright red blood of an animal river pouring forth becomes some other life as a dark to the melancholy hues of an old dried blood which speaks in some lost primitive tongue about the mysteries of death, color, and corruption. The dried blood reminds you of the sordid glory of the bullfight. It's hint of the Renaissance when noble figures stated their presence as they paraded through the marketplace and passed by cripples with stumps for legs a stump for a tongue, and the lewdest grin of the day. Yes, the spectrum of the bullfight goes from courage to gangrene. In Mexico, the hour before the fight is always the best hour of the week. It would be memorable not to sound like Hemingway, but in fact, you would get happy the night before just thinking of that hour next day. Outside the Plaza de Mexico, cheap cafes open only on Sunday, and huge as beer gardens, filled with the public. The mariachis were out, with their romantic, haunting caterwauling of guitar, violin, and trumpet. Their song told of hearts which were true, and hearts which were broken. The wail of the broken heart went right into the trumpet until there were times when drunk the right way on tequila or Mexican rum, it was perhaps the best sound heard this side of Miles Davis. sword goes through his lung, then the animal dies in vomitings of blood. The matador is working close to the animal. The suit of lights becomes stained. The dark blood stain is honorable. It is also steeped in horror. Should the taste of your favorite herb come from the death of some rare love, so the life of the bright red blood of an animal river pouring forth becomes some other life as it darkens to the melancholy hues of an old dried blood 
which speaks in some lost primitive tongue about the mysteries of death, color, and corruption. The dried blood reminds you of the sordid glory of the bullfight. It's hint of the Renaissance, when noble figures stated their presence as they paraded through the marketplace and passed by cripples with stumps for legs, a stump for a tongue, and the lewdest grin of the day. Yes, the spectrum of the bullfight goes from courage to gangrene. In Mexico, the hour before the fight is always the best hour of the week. It would be memorable not to sound like Hemingway, but in fact, you would get happy the night before, just thinking of that hour next day. Outside the Plaza de Mexico, cheap cafes open only on Sunday, and huge as beer gardens, filled with the public. The mariachis were out, with their romantic, haunting caterwauling of guitar, violin, and trumpet. Their song told of hearts which were true and hearts which were broken. The wail of the broken heart went right into the trumpet. Though there were times when drunk the right way on tequila or Mexican rum, it was perhaps the best sound heard this side of Miles Davis. if you've been listening Labor and Love I played some of and then I'm practicing for my show on MutinyRadio.fm for the Flat Black Plaza coming on at noon people get ready like Curtis Mayfield said because it's a Latin thing
Plastic, MutinyRadio.fm. Thanks for Sean from Buckhouse Square Tuesday, 6 to 8, for letting me sit in. This was going to be his show because he was going to be off. So this is, get ready, folks, because uh, it's a Latin thing. <laughs> 